Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Wednesday, June 21st. I know I flubbed the date on yesterday's show. I was so excited about this one that I thought yesterday was the 21st and it was actually the 20th. And anyway, I am now starting off the show by talking about dates again. But nevertheless, it is going to be a great show because we are delving into an issue and a series of issues, I would say, with a woman that has been very difficult to pin down for reasons that will become abundantly clear in a moment. Her name is Tamara Leach. You may have heard of her. She was involved a little over a year and a half ago in the, well, not actually that long. No, it was about 16 months ago or so in this big world-shaking protest, certainly Ottawa-shaking protest. She has been through the absolute ringer, and it is not over yet. She faces uh, criminal charges still, for which she has to answer in Ottawa court in just a couple of months. But nevertheless, she found the time in the midst of all of these trials to write a new book called Hold the Line, My Story from the Heart of the Freedom Convoy. It is by Tamara. Leach. The foreword is by another woman who might be familiar to you, my colleague Rupa Subramanya. And I had the opportunity last week to sit down with Tamara in depth and talk not just about her book, but her whole experience. And as you'll hear in the opening moments of this discussion, there's a reason it has taken so long for us to sit down and do it. And it's not for lack of trying or lack of will on either of our parts. So enjoy, sit back. This is my interview with author Tamara Leach. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Sitting down with the woman who made waves around Ottawa, the country, and I would even venture to say the world, and is now the author of the fabulous new book, Hold the Line, Tamara Leach. Tamara, it's good to sit down with you like this. Thank Thank you you for doing this. Long overdue. Well, (laughs) that's actually a great place to start on this, because you and I have tried to do this for many, many months, and... I have never shared this with anyone before, but at one point you and I literally had an interview scheduled uh, that you missed because you were in jail. Yes, uh, Because you got pulled back to jail. And why has it taken so long? Uh, Since then, well, I did a month in jail after that. And I think that just the overly broad uh, conditions that I was under, you know, Keith and I had to spend a lot of time even when I decided to come out after the POEC and start Mm -hmm. talking, we had to go through those with a fine tooth comb because... They're so terribly worded and so broad that they didn't want me speaking, period. For people that haven't followed the post-convoy travails that you've had here, what has been the trajectory? What has been the story that you've had to basically live, especially earlier on in in 2022? Well, unbelievable bail conditions. Uh, Very broadly written very confusing and uh, you know I've lost so many of my freedoms my freedom of speech uh, you know um, gathering or you know I'm not allowed to organize protests or rallies Um, I don't even go I can't even go to them actually Um, and there was a group that I started with going to uh, rallies and Medicine Hat is meets every Saturday so and I still can't I'm not allowed to go down there so no social media a lot of it's been a challenge but uh, the social media thing is kind of bittersweet. <laughs> I, I mean, sometimes I do wish that I would have a bail condition preventing me from using Twitter because it's such a cesspool at times. It but, is. But there's a difference between choosing to decide, like choosing not to do something and, and being told that you can't and, and threatened 
to be imprisoned if you do. Yeah. And it's crazy because I haven't even been found guilty of a crime. You know? I well, and, and the crimes, I mean, quote unquote, of which you've been accused, anyone would say on the surface are minor crimes. But the experiences that you've had have been, as we've seen certainly in recent months, more severe than people with violent criminal records are being uh, forced to deal with. So how has that felt when you've read all these news stories in the last few months about people who have committed sexual assaults, assaults, even murder while out on bail? Well, here you are. <laughs> out on bail as well and having been thrown back in jail. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the irony is a lot of those situations, those guys were convicted felons, like multiple, multiple convictions and violent convictions. And I, I've never even been in Facebook jail until this happened. So it's quite obvious that it's political, I, I think, um, and a little bit vengeful maybe. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't really make any sense how Chris and I are being treated. and. And um, we got our dates for the trial in the fall, and there's it's like 16 days of trial for a mischief charge. Yeah. I saw that stretching out over several weeks. Yes. Uh, that you'll have to, for the first time, or get to, depending on how you look at it, answer for, for what you did. And I'm curious about your outlook going into that, because when you were at the Public Order Emergency Commission, because of all these bail conditions, that was actually the first time you had really been able to speak about your experience and speak about the convoy through your own perspective. On the criminal side, it's now been a year and seven months by the time this trial comes up that you've had to live with these charges hanging over your head and you've never really been able to answer to them until now. So how do you feel going into that? Well, I think, uh, honestly, I, until the report was released, I felt very confident that I'd never see the inside of a jail cell again. Um, and then that report was released and I thought, well, maybe, and you know, the David Johnston whitewash that just, we just witnessed, it's all unsettling because you just don't know anymore. You know, um, I don't really have any anxiety going into trial. I, I, I cause I'm not guilty. <laughs> I don't feel guilty. Um, I, and I, and I consider myself actually lucky because I don't have anything to lose except time. Whereas Chris Barber's, you know, in a completely different situation. He's got his own business. He's the sole breadwinner. And, you know, so he's got a lot more to lose. He's, and he's still got, I think he's still got a teenage daughter at home. So one thing that was quite striking reading your book is that a lot of it is looking back. A lot of it is talking about the convoy. And I mean, you actually spend a fair amount of time talking about all the situations that led to it, the restrictions, the mandates, the lockdowns. But there are some parts, and I don't know if it's intentional on your part, where you're talking about things in the present tense. Like one that stuck out, stuck out to me is when you said, I've heard Tom Marazzo is having a rough time or something to that mm -hmm. effect. And, and you sort of, as a reader, are jarred by that. At least I was because, oh, wow, she's still not able to talk to this guy right. yes. uh, who she knows and cares about, except for in the presence of counsel. And, and I think that's an important point for people is that while the convoy is easy to look at as a piece of history, because it was, for you, this is very much a present. You're still living through this story. Yeah, it's actually funny. I was thinking about that on the drive in. Uh, like it's been, what, a year and a half now? And I think a lot of people have just moved on, as you do. You know, that's natural. But, um, but for us, we are still living it every single day, you know? So... Yeah, it's, uh, it's been quite an experience, <laughs> to put it mildly. Let's talk a little bit about what you went through in jail, because one of the things that I, I found, and this is probably the story of the convoy 
in and of itself is you had all these people that were coming up to you through your justice process that were supporters. You had jail guards, you had a court employee, you had police officers that were all coming up to you. And I'm guessing quite quietly yes. telling you that, that people were standing behind you, but you were still part of this, and they were still part of this apparatus that was trying to make you a criminal. So how did that feel? And, and did you feel conflicted in where those people were coming from? Because they were still agents of this process. Well, that, that is kind of strange. I, I really appreciated the support. And I mean, like, I think I talk about Robert in my book. I mean, that was just an incredible experience. And this is the courtroom employee yeah, in Ottawa, and there was right? An, yeah. There was another guard there that tell me, texted his wife because he was taking me down and he didn't put my shackles on either. Like typically they put them on every time you leave the courtroom, but uh, he was pretty good to me too. It, um, these people are just trying to feed their families, I think. And, and I know like in Robert's case, like he looked like he was going to cry. He was just devastated that he had to put handcuffs on me. And, and he's in that system. He's a part of that system. So I think it's hard on them too, because they do have families to feed, right? And I think a lot of people get into that, into those types of jobs because they want to make a difference. Well, I've come to the conclusion that only two types of people get into that line of work. People that um, really want to make a difference and change people's lives and be positive impact on lives and people that were picked on in school. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> those are the two. <laughs> yeah, the two types, yes. How have you come through this process without the bitterness that I think you would be entirely justified in feeling, not just about the system itself, but even about individual people. I've, I've never heard you speak about people with anything but kindness, even people that have metaphorically slapped you mm -hmm. many times over. And I think even this is an example. You have people that are putting the handcuffs on you and you're saying they're trying to feed their families. They have a job to do. They believed when they got into this, they were doing the right thing. How? Is that just who you are? Has that been a, a struggle? Has that been a fight for you? No, that is who I am. I've had a lot of people within the last few weeks, and I guess maybe because of my book, say, how do you stay so positive? And, you know, aren't you angry? And, and that's, that isn't who I am. I mean, what are my choices? I can be miserable and depressed, or I can just get up every morning, put one foot in front of the other and keep on keeping on. And you know, our message throughout the whole convoy was we, we don't win this with hatred and anger and division. I mean, if I, if I can't forgive people for the wrongs that they've committed against me, you know, how, how do you expect to build bridges across an entire nation? There's so much that when you and I first were trying to sit down that I, I wanted to hear from you about the whole process of the convoy and how you got involved and what's happened since. And we're, we're going to try to do as much of it as we can, but I know we could probably sit down over many, many days yeah. and, and still leave stuff that, oh yeah, we should have talked about this or, or should have talked about that. But let's go back to the beginning and your own involvement in this, because you were never a particularly political person. And I, I think that, you know, everyone has, has heard you talk about the United We Roll and the Yellow Vest, that sort of uh, 2019 uh, approach that we saw really make a bit of a splash, but, but not mm. ultimately go anywhere. But but explain for people that haven't read your book yet and for people that haven't heard your story, when did Tamara Leach, the political activist, come into the come into picture? Uh, I would say that started with uh, about 2018, 19. 
um, where I got really involved and in, in active in local groups um, because of the policies of the Liberal government. And most of it at that time was all attacks against the oil and gas industry, which, you know, is a big part of the Alberta economy. Um, and again, I mean, really, a lot like COVID, a lot of the things that they were legislating didn't make any sense. Um, and then in the, after the 2019 election, when Trudeau got elected again, I just I thought, I can't, I can't, I got to do something. Somebody has to do something. And um, I joined uh, Peter Downing uh, from Edmonton, had started a Wexit movement based off the UK Brexit movement. And I joined that and became a volunteer. And um, oh, just over the course of time, that morphed into the Maverick Party. Um, and we built a federal independence party from there. And I sat on that board until we got to Ottawa, actually. Mm -hmm. I resigned shortly after we arrived. Uh, just trying to, just sick of the, the deal that the West has been getting. And um, of course, my perspective on separation has changed considerably because of my convoy experience. But I think now we just need to separate from Ottawa. All of Canada needs to separate from Ottawa. Yeah, no, but not even secession as far as just declaring kind of independence as individuals, yes, I think. And, yes, But th this is, I think, one of the most fascinating and, I mean, in some cases complicated elements of the convoy and that you had people that were driven to Ottawa, literally, but I meant figuratively, uh, in part because of anger and I think very justifiable anger. But there also was this patriotism there and... I mean, I remember you and I spoke previously and you had said something along the lines of, of telling, I think it was Chris Barber, to take his upside down Canadian flag and, and turn yeah. it the right side up. I mean, this is not a symbol of distress that we want to show. It's a symbol of, of Canada. And I, I was wondering how you felt about that, because obviously you're going there because something is wrong in your country. Mm -hmm. But people still seem to be generally united by, I don't know if it was a faith in Canada, a hope in Canada, or maybe it was a nostalgia for a Canada that they wanted to bring back. What's your right. thought on that? Well, you're right. I think people were justifiably angry um, and, and they felt hopeless and like nobody was doing anything to help them. You know, as the, and at that time, the rest of the world was starting to open up and we're being vilified and told we can't travel in our own country. And right about the time that we started the convoy, um, they were discussing stopping interprovincial travel which, I mean, I've got family all over the prairies and that wasn't going to work for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so I think the driver was people were just fed up and sick and tired and felt like a lot of the things that we were being told was nonsense and just saw this as a, pardon the pun, vehicle, you know, for them to channel that energy into. And they just, they, they the grassroots of it all is what made it so beautiful because these people didn't phone each other up in their communities and organize groups going out to the highway and the overpasses. They just got out there and then saw all these other people, you know, and then they realized that they weren't alone. And um, then they, yes, really started throwing their support behind us. Yeah, and I think just the United We Roll, to go back to that, I think it was a more meaningful moment for people because, again, conservatives don't often protest. They're too busy working and raising their families. So they did it, but no one really said it had lasting effects. I mean, the, the bills that were being protested still went ahead, and that was a literal convoy that went to Ottawa and, and then turned around and came home. So having gone through that, what made you think this convoy was different before 
you saw people lining the overpasses, before you saw all of the people showing up, when this was still that nugget of an idea that was being planned by Bridget Belton and Chris Barber, and then uh, a few days later you, I mean, what made you think this was actually gonna be more real than that? Well, I think the difference was United Reroll was primarily surrounding oil and gas, so only one industry, whereas the Freedom Convoy was for our entire country. Like, it affected everyone, you know? So I think that's the big difference there. And, you know, kudos to them, because I know that they, they saw a lot of crowds and there was a lot of unity that came as a result of that too. But, but you're right, I mean, their mandate wasn't, wasn't successful, so. so you come into this and there was this whole sort of organic nature that you know i talked about in my book and you talk about in your book of people that just you know they know someone they know someone they all end up on these calls and you've got other people saying i can do this i can do this i can do this uh, what was your role coming into it in your words because i remember there was a line in your book and i don't remember the exact quote but you basically say i never intended or thought you thought i'd be a leader of mm -hmm. anything yeah well i just wanted to support I mean, that's initially why I reached out to Chris and Bridget was just to say, you guys are going to need help and you're going to need, you well, know. Especially because they were actually trucking. They, were, they, yeah, they that's couldn't right. just be at their desk all day. Exactly. Like, so they needed yeah. basically admin support, mm -hmm. right? So, which is what I, I was like, these are my skills. Let me help you. And, you know, as you saw, the donations started to pour in and our social media went crazy. So I recognized immediately that we needed help and a lot of it. And then we started forming the, the committees and stuff, right? But yeah, and I remember at one point previously you said your plan was, you know, raise ten or twenty thousand yeah. dollars, buy some truckers, some sandwiches, and, yeah. and you thought Chris Barber was crazy for wanting a six-figure sum to yeah, be the target right. yeah. for the GoFundMe, and then of course you were both crazy because it ended up being ten million dollars. Like unbelievable. Try to, try to explain as best as you can how you felt seeing that number rise, because I, I almost would would imagine that it wasn't quite real because it's not cash. It's a number on a, on a monitor. It's like you're looking at this and it's like, the, but how did you feel just seeing that thing rise at a certain point by a million dollars a day? Oh, it was, it was exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. I would, uh, you know, Cindy would get a hold of me and say, you got to bump it up another million. And I would, and, and it was so exciting at this. But on the other hand, like I would literally get sick to my stomach because I knew there was lawyers coming. I mean, you don't talk about millions of dollars without people coming to try and take it away from well, you. Well, and you, just for people to understand, you set this up to a personal bank account yes. that was 13 cents overdrawn. And there yes. was a great little moment in the book where you say you donated, or not donated, but you 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 know, transferred 13 yeah. cents to that account so no one could say that you even benefited, you know, by 13 cents That's right. from this I money. was yeah. so careful. I even, um, after Chris and I had opened another account, in Ottawa um, for the donations, I had the, I called the bank and asked them to remove the access right off my access cards. I like, I didn't even want to accidentally buy myself a coffee, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. like, like I took that role very seriously. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that I became uh, one of the faces of it was because it got, it became really important to me that Canadians who were trusting, essentially, it was my name on the, on the GoFundMe, trusting me with all that money and I just wanted people to get a sense of who I was. I wanted them to know that it was going to be a very open and transparent process and that their donations would go to exactly where it was intended to go. So that's why I started doing the lives. And then the support, you know, just to say thank you. And, and just as the days wore on, just to tell Canadians just how 
super proud I was. You know, we were all so proud of them. They just rose to the occasion and it was, the convoy for me was one of the most beautiful experiences in humanity that I've seen. You and Chris didn't know each other. No. But got into a truck together and drove across the country, which for most people would be like a, you know, some people find a blind date to be a disaster, whereas <laughs> you were committing uh, to have many, many days together. But, you know, you were basically instant friends, it mm -hmm. sounded like. We, we really were, right? That first phone call, we hit, hit it off. Mm -hmm. And then I, of course, found out that he's from the same part of Saskatchewan that I'm at. So, yeah, we got along great. And I knew within talking to him for 15 minutes that we were going to be BFFs. <laughs> what was that drive like? I know a lot of it was chronicled by your lives, but, but the stuff that we didn't see, what was mm. that journey like? It was exhausting. Uh, it was busy. I think I joke in my book that, um, you know, if Chris and I some days got to talk to each other for five full minutes, mm. that was kind of a miracle. I mean, we were just both so super busy. Um, and, and, but we did, we discussed what could happen when we got there because we didn't really know what to expect. You know, we discussed, you know, what are we go, what are we going to do when we get there? Like we've organized this massive convoy. We're moving across Canada. Now what? <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, that all had to be put together and, and, um, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was tiring. Uh, Jonathan, his son, was with us too. So we got to know each other pretty well. You know, I, I, I trust Chris Barber with my life. Tell me about Manitoba. Mm, yeah, that was amazing. Uh, Manitoba is one of my favorite things to talk about for obvious reasons. And, and that was... Uh, I don't know I if it is obvious to find good things to talk about really? Manitoba, so please tell them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was so surreal because we, we, as we came into Headingley, even, there was massive crowds all along the road, like coming right up to the side of the trucks even, you know, we had to go so slow. And this just, this crowd continued all the way through Headingley and all the way around Winnipeg and almost to the border. But the epiphany, as we're driving, and I look out the window and I see these native dancers drumming on the side of the road. And there's, I think there was like four Sikh gentlemen standing beside them and they were, you know, hooting and hollering and nuns in full habits and hutterates and their children. And I just thought that was the moment when I realized that it didn't matter who you were, what color your skin was, what God you worshiped what your income bracket was or where you lived. Everyone was just a Canadian and they were celebrating it. You know, it was the most beautiful thing. And Justin, diversity is our strength, Trudeau. Yes. Doesn't care about these diverse groups, not the Sikhs that supported the convoy, the indigenous that supported the convoy, the nuns. It's only a certain type of diversity that we exalt in that way of thinking. And something interesting that Nolene Villebrin, one of the clan mothers, mm -hmm. I think you've met her, said in her witness statement at the inquiry was, which is profound, she said that the Freedom Convoy was the closest thing she's seen to an actual reconciliation in her lifetime, mm -hmm. which is a pretty profound statement from a clan mother and an elder. I was going to ask you actually about the indigenous dimension to this because that was the one story above all else that the mainstream media I think had to be willfully ignoring because it went against everything that they say in every other context about you know reconciliation about the need to be compassionate and tolerant of indigenous people. We know that in Canada indigenous people had lower 
vaccination rates against COVID than non-Indigenous people, which means that they were, by definition, disproportionately affected by vaccine mandates because uh, there were more of them that, that had chosen not to get that. And normally, you'd think in a tolerant, compassionate society, we'd say, okay, maybe we'd recognize the past trauma of Indigenous people, all of this stuff that we're told to talk about with residential schools and, and so on. But with COVID, that was completely ignored. The Liberal government didn't care about it. Provincial governments didn't care about it. The media didn't care about it. But if you walked around the convoy in Ottawa, there were Indigenous people everywhere. And, and that's rare in political movements, that you see that group aligned with something that is more broadly conservative or broadly attracts conservatives. So did you know that going into it, that that was going to be this demographic that would really take to this cause? I didn't know that it, it was going to be on that scale. I mean, I remember the video that I did after I first talked to Nolene, and, and that was another eye-opening moment for me that we had a real chance here to to work together you know what i mean like when do you see that happen you you hear the government talking about it but you don't you rarely see it and um i knew that you know when she came on board and wanted to help and sandra mckenzie also that you know we had a real opportunity here to to start mending fences and working together and and as a whole, when we got there, there was a, a large number of Indigenous people, but the media only focused on the ones that were upset that we were there, mm -hmm. you know, because that's what they do. Even my own Indigenous heritage, um, like I talk about in my book, it's laughable that they questioned it, mm -hmm. because if I would have been there for any other cause, they'd be parading me around the country right now, giving <laughs> me the Order of Canada. Yeah. But because yeah. it wasn't for something that fit the Liberal government's ideology, they questioned it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, you had the, the Aboriginal People's Television Network running a whole story on essentially questioning your Indigenous heritage. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you don't need to set the record straight, but, but explain to me about how that heritage matters to you. Because I, that was something that I didn't quite get a full picture of until I read it in your book, of just the connection you've had to that part of your identity. Mm -hmm. Well... I was adopted into a Caucasian family when I was quite, was two or three months old. And so, but I always felt a very strong connection. And my parents were wonderful about, you know, always letting me know that I was adopted and making sure that I embraced my heritage. And so I, unfortunately, though, didn't have access to, there's not a lot of elders in Frontier, Saskatchewan, <laughs> you know. Um, so I had had to go out and find it on my own and, and researched it and um, it, it's just a it's just something that's always re resonated with me and been an, important to me and I've embraced it and I think it's a beautiful part of of Canadian history and um, yeah it's uh, I don't know how else to describe it well, it's just a part of who I am. It is. And it was fascinating to see when you made a joke in your text messages with Chris Barber about, you know, I'll play the indigenous card or something like that. The race card. The race card. Yeah. <laughs> and the media latched into this on, you know, like as evidence of what I don't know. And you're really just saying, you know, if they want to play the identity politics game, well, here I am, a Métis woman. I'm going to come out and play that That's game too. Exactly and right. and I, I took that and I sort of chuckled at it, but people got very angry about it. And that. the crown prosecutor almost yeah. lost his mind. Yeah. So they, they don't think you have a right to be Indigenous, because right. you aren't their type of Indigenous. Right. Well, I mean, but that's the funny thing in today's world, right? You can just identify as something <laughs> now, and, which is funny because I identify as innocent, but yet here I am. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, become a, it's become a country that's 
creating policies and legislation on hurt feelings, and that's dangerous. That's dangerous territory. When your government starts trying to tell you what it's what is appropriate for you to believe and not to believe, what's appropriate for you to think and not to think, you're getting into some pretty sketchy territory there. Let's return to the journey to Ottawa, because so much was going to the fundraising campaign, how to get to Ottawa, the logistics of that, of hotels, motels along the way. Fuel. You get to Ottawa, and what did you expect? What, what was your plan going into it? Because I know this was basically the whole point of the Public Order Emergency Commission in, in large parts of it was, did they always intend to stick around indefinitely? Was that always your plan? We wanted to see the mandates lifted. That was our plan. Um, obviously, you know, if they would have showed any type of good faith uh, towards, especially, you know, towards the end and just came and talked to us, like, I th- think by that point people were ready to leave like they were tired and they wanted to go home so i think if we would have had a show of good faith um maybe that would have stopped it but you know like i was saying earlier chris and i discussed that like what are we going to do when we get there and and we didn't know what to expect um and so we needed to, an exit strategy which thankfully once the lawyers got in we could we started working on that and um, but it was never the right time to release it. And, but, and you never had one from the outset. You no. never had an exit strategy no. going in. We were just trying to get to get Ottawa in one piece. <laughs> and right? figure the rest out later. Which was, yeah. yeah, which does sound incredibly crazy. But I mean, that was that was like 16, 18 hour days for me. You know, I'd get up at five or six in the morning and go to bed at two or three at night. And then I'd lay in bed for an hour thinking, <laughs> oh, I forgot to do this or I got to do that. And, you know, we were organizing fuel. We were looking for... Uh, hotels for supporters that were traveling with us to stay in because most of the truckers obviously had their own vehicles their bunks uh, the routes where we were gonna stop and then we had all the people that wanted to bring food and coffee and sandwiches and donations you know what I mean so it was a lot to put together and to do it safely yeah. you know and, and I'm so proud of um, my mom and dad and Chris both mom and dad let were the in the lead pilot but, you know, the fact that when we got into Arnprior, we were 100 kilometers long and we had not one single accident, mm-hmm. which is, a, well, that's a miracle. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if I could just drive alone uh, yeah. from uh, <laughs> B.C. to uh, Ottawa without getting into an accident. But it's funny you mentioned the, the length, because the one thing that I remember trying to report on this that was next to impossible was to get any sense of numbers. And I gave up at a certain point because no one had them. And it's like, and there, there were all of these myths circulating. Like people say, well, you know, the front is in Ontario and the back is in Alberta or yes, something like that. I there know. were all these myths. You know, people say, oh, 15,000 trucks, this many trucks. And I think a lot of it was just people being very enthusiastic or they hear something. But, but there was almost a, a fun to that, which was this thing was just kind of rapidly taking on this own, its own mythology, if, if you will. And, and just people were seeing it was massive because small things are easy to count. Big things are not. So the fact that no one could come up with a number was, I think, a sign of how large this thing was. I mean, everyone saw early on those drone footage that you'd see of the highways out in Alberta and just like, holy crap. It was insane. It was because we never got to see that. No, we were in the front. No, you just saw the road in front, especially at the you didn't even see the back of a truck. Yeah, you just That's saw the right, front. That's right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was, oh man, I, it was, yeah, there was a lot, there was so many rumors. Yeah, I heard at one point, when we were crossing into Ontario, the end was just coming through the Saskatchewan. Yeah, <laughs> that was it. I was yeah. like, you guys, it's yeah. not like, and some of our own people were saying that. Mm-hmm. 
I said we're not five hours long. We're yeah. maybe like an hour long, but we're not certainly. But again, long. but again, to to your point on that, there was also a smaller group that might have been passing that point. That's and, right. You know, it's not necessarily an unbroken chain. Because there were so many. But yeah, yeah like I mean, uh, one of my jobs, of course, with the finance committee that we set up. We had all these beautiful processes mm -hmm. in place and stuff and how we were going to do this and g great in theory, yeah. you know, like... Um, Everyone register with your road yeah. captain to get... Re yeah. I'm going to walk around and hand out yeah. registration forms and I'm going to stand at the gas pumps when they, you know, and, and it became apparent right away that that was not even yeah. in the realm of reality. But one of my jobs was to send the committee's road counts every day or truck counts and it was impossible. Because people would come and, you know, drive for a couple hours or drive across a province or drive for two days or whatever. Yeah, but they'd come in for a little bit. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and while all of this was happening, there was this parallel organization taking place in Ottawa, which I guess we could call the, the Welcome Committee, for lack of a better term. And they were setting up this operations center at the Swiss Hotel. You had all of these people there. How much of that did you know was happening? Uh, we started meeting with that group before we left. Okay. Yeah, so so yeah, they were starting to get the infrastructure. Uh, I can't remember the first time I talked to Chris Guerra and Janet, but Chris Guerra is the guy who founded Adopt a Trucker. Yes, for that's right, exactly. And they had their own gifts or their own. I don't know if they had a GoFundMe. They had their own gifts and go. go. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he was setting that up, and I think Adopt a Trucker happened um, just before we got there or after. In the meantime, or in the beginning, though, he had a group together that was, you know, making sure there was food and. Well, porta potties. We were hoping that that was an adventure in itself, trying to get those. But you know, just getting the infrastructure set up and places to stay and places for the truckers and supporters to shower and stay warm and that kind of thing. So, and so we were in heavy uh, conversations with them too, so that we knew you know where we were going when we got there and stuff. But uh, did, did you, you were at the Swiss Hotel? So I accidentally went to the Swiss oh, Hotel wow. because it was on that first weekend. I think it was the Sunday. And uh, Benjamin Dichter had organized this little informal yes, uh, press right. conference with only independent media, and it was there was a room number, and I think it was the room number started with a one. So I and I wasn't sure if the first floor was the basement or the level above it or something. And I walked in and walked downstairs, and I walk into this room, and I'm like, "What the heck is this place?" I see you know people on computers, people milling about. There's food. There's this, and I'm like, "I'm here for the press conference." They're like, "Oh yeah, you want to go upstairs and and down the hall?" And, and that was for me even though I'd been kind of following this for a couple of weeks by now, that was the eye-opening moment for me of there's another story here that no one is talking about and no one knows about, which is just the, frankly, the sophistication of this really grassroots movement. And, and I guess I'll ask you about that because do you think it got too complicated? Because even in your book, you're writing about, oh, we had security, we had intelligence, we had logistics, we had uh, law enforcement, we had medical, we had the, was all of that necessary for a bunch of trucks on yes, Wellington Street? I, I believe so, because, because of the scale. I mean, and even in the early, early days, you know, as the donations started coming in and the emails and the Facebook messages, I knew instinctively right away that we needed to start focusing on safety. And, uh, you know, when we saw, you know, even the numbers in Ottawa, you know, we had to keep those emergency lanes open. So, you know, having somebody like Thomas was just fantastic because he was a paramedic. So he knew the routes. He knew, you know, that we needed to keep these lanes open. He And specifically the ones that they used the most. Um, same with Danny Bulford. I mean, we got some really amazing, amazing people to help with this. And I think... 
we needed every bit of it. It sounds like it was complicated, but I think when we were facing the, t the attacks from the government, you know, the attacks from the police, the Ottawa City Police and the city, you know, we needed it. We needed every bit of it and more probably, <laughs> you know. You had become by this point the face of this movement. I mean, in large part because of the Facebook Lives and large part because yours was the name on the GoFundMe account. Did you ever feel a, a sense of, I don't know if guilt is the right word, but a, a discomfort that you were not a trucker, but had become the focal point of this trucker-led protest? No, because um, I've, I did, I used my skill set. My skill set isn't driving a truck, but I used the skills that I had to try and make it successful. And so it started, it started with the truckers, but I don't feel like that was a trucker movement. Mm -hmm. They were the catalyst in a Canadian movement, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a lot of people there that weren't truckers. So, um, I mean, the, they're definitely heroes, of course, for, you know, driving there. It's like the, seeing the cavalry, you know, going off to war, basically, and, and holding their ground and just being great people. So I'm proud that I could use my skill set to help them, you know. But there was some resentment that started to go your way. I mean, notably, and you talk about this in the book, yes. is Bridget Belton, who... Uh, undeniably, and you give her full credit for this, was one of the sparks behind this. It was her persistence that got her linked up with Chris Barber and they started promoting this thing. But but she then started to grow very frustrated with you getting the glory and yes. the attention on that. Yes. How, how did that unfold? I, I started sensing that right the first day that we got to the hill, honestly. And, and um, so I made, you know, if people would come up to me, there were Chris and Bridget and I were up there and I would always go over and grab her and introduce her and you know explain to everybody who she was because I didn't want to take that away from her and you know we had a few run-ins in in Ottawa where I felt like I had to tell her like look I didn't ask for this you know I, I'm not I never came looking for this I just want a better country for my grandkids to grow up in um, so that was tough you know and, and we'd have discussions and I always felt like when we finished those discussions that everything was fine and five minutes later it would be starting all over again and and so it's unfortunate and i i pray for her i pray that she finds some peace of mind and you know whatever it is she's looking for you know this this isn't this whole movement wasn't about me it wasn't about chris barber it wasn't about bridget belton this was a, about canada you know and and every person that lined an overpass or went out along the highway or donated money is also a hero because what would they have been without them you know we could have drove across Canada but if it wasn't for the support from the people then it would have been just for nothing <laughs> I, I know Benjamin Dichter was very very diligent about wanting to control the message and you know prevent all these little pop-up press conferences that mm. the people were having and, and try to speak with relatively one voice and it was usually his or, or yours and I know there were some other people there and I, do you feel like that ended up hurting the movement in a way because it was so grassroots and, and to try to have one voice to try to have press conferences did that make it look a lot more formal than it was I think, yeah, maybe it was more formal. You know, in hindsight, looking back on that, like I would remember like he'd message me and someone's always having a press conference. And so, <laughs> oh my God, you know, and, and it, I wish at the time we would just sort of said, fine, like anybody can have a press conference yeah. if you want. But what we were concerned about was just making sure that our message stayed the same and that we were, 
you know, peace, love, unity, freedom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you get some people behind a camera and that's not always what comes out of their mouth. So, so it became important to us. And I'd known Benjamin um, before through Tom Quiggin. So, and I thought he was very great on social media. And I thought he was very articulate. Um, he had a little bit of a background in politics and, and was good in media. So I tapped him on the shoulder to help with being a spokesperson. I know that there were some people that were fairly skeptical of him. Now, I've known Benjamin for many years and had had only positive encounters with him until a couple of months ago. And there were other people that were a bit more suspect. And, and I heard you defend him to those people as recently as at the George Jonas Freedom Dinner, where people were asking, you said, you know, you couldn't talk to him, you weren't allowed to, but you said you, you trusted him with your life. But he has since then kind of led this faction against what I would call the Tamara faction in a way, which right. are people that are, <laughs> are more loyal to you. And, and you know, they've been, you know, they've, they've gone their own way on the legal stuff. They've uh, been very critical of the convoy leadership, especially of some of the, the Justice Center lawyers uh, like mm -hmm. Keith Wilson and Eva Chipiak. And where did that breakdown happen? Because oftentimes you would expect these breakdowns to happen when the convoy is in Ottawa and people have all these different beliefs on, on how to run things. But it seemed like, I mean, just you and Benjamin, for starters, were very tight mm -hmm. until months later. Yeah. So what happened? I don't know what happened, honestly. Um, we were trying to get a call with him in the summer. Um, I think it was before I was arrested or just after. There was a really good working relationship still going on there. Um, well, I mean, between him and, and some of the other people, of course, I can't talk to him. So uh, and we were trying to set up a call with him and he was trying to set up a call with us and we just couldn't make it work. And then finally we found the time to do that um, so we could discuss the, the civil suit. And um, all of a sudden he ghosted us hmm. and he didn't get back to us. And then all of a sudden there's these weird things po poking up on his videos and stuff. And, and um, when he came out and he was calling my friends some very terrible names, um, I just thought you're not the person that I thought you were because that's not how <laughs> that's not how we roll you know what I mean mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I don't think there's any room in this movement for that and um, unfortunately I think in any movement there's egos that get involved and and then people start butting heads mm -hmm. so I don't know I mean some of his theories are completely bizarre and um, yeah well, and other people that have kind of joined that little cause, I guess. I mean, Chad E. Ross, who was the accountant, and again, someone that you had a yes. tremendous amount of trust in. Chris Guerra, who we've spoken about, who did a tremendous amount of work on the ground and has now be become very critical of it. And, and I, I don't know if people realize how this starts to undermine a lot of the unifying work that the convoy does. And I'm not saying people should shut up if they have legitimate grievances, but I, I'm not even quite aware of what the grievances are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is unfortunate. And, and just to go back to what we were talking about earlier, you, you've not really been able to set the record straight when people start making all of these accusations until now. No, no, exactly. And, and for the most part, Andrew, I don't, I don't care what people say. I mean, I had thick skin before and I definitely have very thick skin now. <laughs> And people are just going to make up a bunch of wild stories anyways. I mean, you know, I've heard, I, I've heard crazy stories about me. I was going to go to Ottawa and try and install the Maverick Party. Like, I mean, it doesn't, some of it doesn't even make sense. And, 
but you know what? It, 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 it's hurtful when it comes from from people that you trusted and. You know, I've said it before, and, and I mean it. I mean, a lot of us went there as strangers, and we turned into a family when we were there. So, you know, obviously, they have their beefs, and they feel that they were wronged, and I, I certainly hope that it all gets sorted out at the end of the day, and everyone can just get along and be happy and work together. We're stronger yeah. together, you know? The one thing that the Public Order Emergency Commission did incredibly well, I thought, was reveal how effectively none of the money... <laughs> went to you or other convoy organizers. They, they produced a report, which I thought was actually quite, quite, quite in-depth and detailed about the cryptocurrency donations, the GoFundMe, the gifts and go, the e-transfers, and, and everything but the cash, basically. And, and the money essentially went to the government or it was refunded to donors. Very, very little of it went to you. And what went to you, I'm talking about as the custodian yes, for the organization, right, yes. not, not to you personally. But that's been, I think, probably one of the most vicious lines of attack I've seen against you, is that, you know, you're sitting off in the Bahamas with $10 million <laughs> while, uh, you know, other people are doing this. And, and you've, I mean, you've lost more than you've gained out yes, of this movement. Yes, it's, it's, I've heard that uh, I've got a Swiss bank account. I've bought a property in Hull, Quebec. Uh, I've left for Mexico. You know, it, it, and, and to me, that's actually disappointing because it's a Google search. There was a forensic audit done. Like every penny is accounted for. And if people really put in the effort, they could find that information out in about a minute. You know, I, I made the mistake in the early days of the convoy that a lot of other mainstream media reporters did, which was thinking the money meant more than it actually did uh, as far as the movement. And, and that was, I think, the, the one thing that I found. Because I remember even when I was sitting down with um, that informal press conference on the first weekend, I had, you know, was peppering you and uh, Benjamin and Chris with, with questions about, you know, how's the, this money going to be spent and that money. But at the time, that was the way you could measure momentum. We didn't know how many trucks there were. We didn't know how many people, but we knew there was $10 million. Yes. So, so that was the thing. But, but in the end, the money really was meaningless. People spent their own money to get there. If someone needed something, they just you know, said it and it sort of just appeared. Like I remember uh, hearing uh, you know, Dave uh, live from the shed, you know, mentioned needing a Starlink and some guys like, be right back. And then you know, that afternoon, there's a Starlink or something. Exactly. That was the story of it. Yes. So the, the money, I mean, yes, people needed to buy their fuel and buy vehicle parts and, and you know, pay for hotel rooms, but it, but it was a, a reflection of the convoy support, not the source of it. Yeah, and I said this to Keith, you know, pretty early on. Keith Wilson, Keith the, Wilson the lawyer, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, we got there with no money. We stayed with no money, without that money. And, and we got home without that money. It was never about the money. It was the statement behind the money. The statement behind the money was that we had overwhelming support, which terrified Justin Trudeau's liberals for sure. Well, I think it terrified all of them, you know what I mean? Um, but it, it was the sentiment behind it. It was incredible. They wish they could make that much money in donations when, you know. Yeah, you are right about that. And, and I think one of the things that I would point out as well is that any time the government or the police tried to crack down on something, more of it turned up. So they try to crack down on fuel and then everyone shows up <laughs> with jerry cans. They, uh, you know, try to crack down on money and then people just start showing up with cash. And I remember when I had said on my show once that I probably shouldn't tell the story, but <laughs> I had said on my show once that I was going back up to Ottawa to cover it. And I had someone, you know, through this sort of 
broken telephone get my number and say, you know, can I give you $10,000 in cash to bring up there? And I, I said, I just said, I, I can't be a part of that. Yeah. I'm, I'm a journalist. I, I, I'm going up there to cover. But, but that was the type of thing that people were, were trying to do. And, and you know, I, I've heard heartfelt stories from, from folks who got a $5 bill shoved into their hand from someone where that $5 was needed and, and was, was not nothing. And people in tears because, because they believe that the Freedom Convoy was their last best hope in this country. And I, I'm wondering if that gave you hope or if that kind of weighed on you in a way. And that almost made it like just, oh, my goodness, we have to we have to win. We have to get this. Both. Uh, I would say both. Yeah, it was there. The, on the ground in Ottawa, and you probably saw it, too, the most profound interactions or the some of the hardest ones I and I had were with immigrants from Poland or Iran you know it was like the desperation that was in their eyes because they've lived through this before they've seen all the signs you know and and, and it was heartbreaking there was so many people that just thought this was it like this is this is their last you know and like you said people donated money or that they couldn't afford to do but I think if they couldn't go to Ottawa or they couldn't get to a highway, everyone just wanted to feel like they were a part of it. So even if they didn't have 10 bucks, they, they donated 10 bucks mm -hmm. because just to feel like they were participating, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it was so beautiful. And the donations that people brought, I mean, you saw the streets. There was like every few feet tables set <laughs> up with, you know, food or mittens yeah. or Tukes or everything there. There's everything there from lip chap to dog food, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and you also were, were seeing, you know, people in the Ottawa neighborhoods around this a lot more supportive than the CBC version of what an Ottawa resident thinks. And obviously, there was disruption. I mean, everyone's talked about it, the horns, but after the injunction, the horn issue largely went away. Uh, obviously, it was by design disruptive, as a protest is supposed to be. But you also had Ottawa residents that were opening up their homes saying come use my shower come use my my bathroom and that was not uncommon it sounded it, it was it was um it was common mm -hmm. uh, there was hardly i only saw two people in ottawa the whole time i was there that were upset and they weren't rude to me i remember we were standing outside of the sheridan and this guy was walking across the street and he saw me and he just kept looking at me like he recognized me <laughs> and then he starts walking crossing the street but away from me at an angle which I thought was funny and he yelled something and I said oh thank you and he goes no I don't support you and I said that's okay have a nice day you know and then another lady when we slipped outside of the Swiss because that door opens right onto the sidewalk I bumped into her and I'm like oh my goodness I'm so sorry she's like go home <laughs> but everyone else from Ottawa that I, I dealt with was happy that we were there they said it was the most fun they've had there in years like it's you know supposed to be the most boring city ever uh, they thought they felt like it was better than Canada Day. They were bringing donations. Federal government employees were hiding, covering their faces and coming down and bringing food and blankets and firewood. You know, so we had a lot of support from from them. I actually talked to at the POEC, a lady on the street who worked in the public safety minister's office. And uh, I had only been there like a day or two and I ran into her and she was wishing me the best of luck. Wow. <laughs> she was not too happy with her boss. There, there was one chapter of the book that I thought, or section of the book that I thought was quite interesting, where you talk about a statement that you issued about the blockades in, in Coots and the border blockades. And, 
the the line was effectively, you know, we don't claim credit for it, but you know, we we wish them well, yeah. essentially. And, and I know that this was a very pivotal moment, I think, in how people started to talk about the convoy, even among people who had been sympathetic. They say, you know, yeah, I support the truckers in Ottawa, but I don't support the border blockade. You know, the biggest one was Coots, but you also had Windsor and Emerson and, and Surrey for yes. for a couple of days. And and I think everyone has established now that this was not being centrally managed or planned in any way by you or, or by your team in Ottawa, but it's undeniably part of the same movement. People were, were going there. What's your thought on that now? Do you support those actions? I don't support illegal activity. I it's too. I wish. I wish they wouldn't have blocked the borders. Um, or well, I mean, and I don't. I don't even know if that's true. That's what the media says. Like my parents went through the Coots border, and they said it was the RCMP that had blocked it, not the truckers. Let, I, I don't. Know. Let me just ask you what you mean by illegal activity, though, because you know you've been charged with illegal activity, yes, and I yeah. know you claim you're innocent. And and even if you talk about traffic violations, blocking up a city street, that still is illegal in some way. So at what point did? At what point? did the convoy go too far? At what point was it a higher level of protest than you thought was acceptable? I did it. Well, I, I mean, the, 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 we, the border blockades yeah. were, were definitely problematic. And, and again, I mean, I totally get why they were, why they were angry. Our mandate was to, we, well, yes, stay legal, you know, and there was definitely parking violations there, yeah. but I didn't have a vehicle there. <laughs> right? So, um, and yeah, so I don't know. I, I think they did the best that they could. You know, it was so organic and it was so grassroots. And we had to be very careful to be supportive of their protest, but maybe not supportive of the illegal activity. But, you know, in issuing that statement, you know, we didn't we also weren't going to hang them out to dry. Like, we, you know, we weren't going to throw them under the bus either. So it was a, that was a really interesting situation to try to navigate well, and it, and it was difficult for, I know, the conservatives at the time, because even they, who had been after Aaron O'Toole was ousted and Candace Bergen came in, they had been relatively supportive of the convoy. And, but that was where they drew the line as well. They said, you know, we support them, but not the blockades. And, and several months ago, I, I interviewed uh, Pierre Polyev and asked him, and he had said something very similar to, well, I'd prefer they didn't come with vehicles, was kind of one of the things he said. So I will ask about that. If someone had come along, be it the police or the government or, or someone else, and said, okay, ditch the trucks and you can stay as long as you want. Would that have been acceptable? That's basically the deal that we had worked out with the city, other than Wellington. Mm -hmm. um, it, that would have been more than acceptable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the trucks were the symbol. The trucks were how it started, but you just thought you needed to be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we wanted to be heard. You know, that's what you're supposed to do when your government's not listening to you. And... I'm just so incredibly proud of everyone for for staying like dignified and peaceful and you know because let's face it there was a lot of people that were angry I mean that could have turned ugly uh, you know that the day that we went to try and move trucks right after we had the deal with the city um, at Rideau Sussex there um, and then that large crowd came in and, and I just I had that split second moment where I was like I could see how this could turn ugly in a, in a split second and and they didn't like to they, they were just chanting freedom and singing oh canada but you know they were agitated and you, you could really feel the the energy in the air so obviously you know keith and i became quite concerned for the safety of the officers and just wanted to get them out of there and obviously we ended up shutting that operation down but that was the whole the whole point 
you know, going into Ottawa, we had planned to have the trucks outside of the city other than some down on Wellington. But I mean, they let us right in, right, right yeah. up there. On that note, did you sense the tone change and the mood change from day one to closer to the end of, of the people in the movement? Um, I think towards the end, people were getting pretty tired. I mean, for the most part, they were still all positive and, and happy. I mean, there were, were still, still dance parties, on the still even dance after the Emergencies Act, there were right. dance parties. But, but, but people were getting concerned yeah. and, you know, they were provoking us at every turn. So, you know, with the first one being with the, the raid on Coventry, and then they were going to start coming after the fuel, which was, you know, the dairy cans and yeah. stuff. And then it was they were going to come after your pets. And then they were threatening to come and take children away. And so that could have gotten ugly. But when I got home from jail last winter and I sat down on my couch and I watched the footage, I bawled for two days like a baby watching the, you know, the police action against peaceful protesters and, and a lot of people that I knew and cared about in those videos. And um, I just thought it was so telling how I didn't even see one single Canadian lift up the middle finger to any of those guys. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wasn't down there. I, was, I wasn't there. I, I didn't hear anyone swearing at the police. You know, they still, even in the face of that, stayed peaceful. And, and um, I, it, it's almost hard to believe. You had on one hand a group of convoy protesters that were saying we're not leaving. And then on the other hand, you have a government that has shown no interest in, in hearing them out, hearing you out. How else did you think it was going to end? Because I, I think it's a fair question that's asked by some critics when mm -hmm. obviously this was going to end with people either tiring up and going home or police coming in and removing them. I mean, how did you think it was going to end? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I left Medicine Hat not knowing when I was going to be back. I mean, obviously, in the back of my head, I thought, I, I had ideas, you know, in the, like in the back of my head, I thought, wow, if we can raise $20,000, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, in the back of my head, I thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll probably be there for a week, you know, um, two, or the weekend is laughable. I, mean, I can't believe they think that we were going to drive five days across the country. To stay two days. <laughs> to stay for two days and drive home. Yeah. So I, I don't know, you know, I, that's a hard question for me to answer because... And of course, driving across Canada and hearing all these stories, I mean, that really stiffened our resolve, you know, that we wanted to be heard. And, and, and I believed, I guess, naively, that somebody would come and talk to us. And so when we, when we struck that deal with the city of Ottawa, um, I was so happy because I thought, step one, here's a step. This is positive. You well, know? it would have been recognition. I mean, the first time that, I mean, yes, it's the mayor of Ottawa, not a hugely important person, but it would have been recognition by an official yes. that, that you were a group. Yes. And we were trying so hard. Like I said, we were peaceful. And I was always advocating for peace and love and unity and respecting the police and following the law. So, you know, I don't, under, I don't know what they were so scared of. You know, I, I've heard... You and, and others say, you know, if they had just come out and spoken to us, if, you know, Justin Trudeau or someone had just come out. But I, I'm... None of us ever wanted to talk to Justin. Well, I think that's a fair, that's a fair, <laughs> fair point. But, but let's say that some federal government official had come out. I don't think it would have made a difference, even if they had sat down and said, I'll hear you, if they weren't prepared to act. So being heard wasn't just 
what you were after, wasn't right. it? Right. Well, no, we wanted the mandates lifted. Mm -hmm. We wanted everything lifted. Because you can be very polite to someone and hear them out and nod along and then go back in. And yeah, that's <laughs> and right. Nothing yes, changed. Exactly. And, uh, but, and I, I, I forget who it was at the commission that had said, you know, they didn't want to just be heard. They wanted to be obeyed. But mm -hmm. is there not a bit of truth to that? Well, I don't know. I don't really like the word obey. I mean, I think there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with Canadians wanting to be yeah. listened to. No, I, I, if, I, if I were to give you the answer there, I, what I would have loved for them to have said is we wanted them to realize they were wrong. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that's right. Or, you know, we, even if they would have said, okay, you've proved your point, so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get a handful of, vet us. Mm -hmm. Well, we had already been profiled. I mean, yeah. they already knew everything about <laughs> us vet us and put together a little committee and we can continue these talks later, later mm -hmm. or, or anything, but they didn't do anything, mm -hmm. nothing. They and yeah. yes, they, they just, you know, called us terrible names. And, and, um, but, the, but that's the really, one of the great things about this whole thing was that Canadians owned it. I mean, as he started calling us names and, and then the, you know, the unacceptable fringe and we owned it. And then the jerry can thing, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. He kept throwing this stuff at us and nothing was sticking and we were just taking that back and throwing it right back in his face. You know, it was, uh, it was, um, it was pretty funny. <laughs> it has also birthed a movement in Canada that has outlasted the Freedom Convoy. I mean, that summer of 2022, there were freedom rallies everywhere. There were these little, you know, mini convoys. Canada Day was being canceled by the media, but convoy folks were saying we're, we're having Canada Day. Uh, even now, there are all these little groups and associations and organizations and Facebook pages that have all sort of popped up that were motivated by or, or were the products of people that were united by this thing. And, and when you look around, one thing that strikes me is that there are some people that don't want to move on from the COVID era on both sides, I think. You know, there are the, you know, the people that you know, want us to mask up for the, till the end of time. But there are also people, it seems like, that want to keep the convoy alive when the thing that they were protesting ha has largely gone. And I'm curious what you think the, the legacy of this should be. I think this was a great awakening. I think a lot of people in Canada knew that we were in trouble uh, politically, um, economically. Uh, and I think that what the convoy did was actually showed them how bad it really is or, or, or gave them a bit of more insight into the bigger picture. Because um, I don't know if anyone knows how bad it is. If they're just admitting that China's, inf you know, influencing our politics, then how bad is it really? Yeah. Like, what aren't they telling us, right? Uh, that's my that's my uh, take on politics these days. <laughs> Anyways, but I, I think the legacy of the Freedom Convoy is the unity, and it is the humanity, and the fundamental beauty of what makes us great. Canadians are great people. You know, we couldn't have survived here if we didn't look after each other and help our neighbors. And we couldn't have, you know, and, and that's to me what, what the legacy should be. Just the, the, the humanity that, that came as a result of it. Looking back on it, what would you say was something you would do differently tactically or, or organizationally, if anything? Well, I brought more trucks. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I would have, I think if I could do one thing different, I would have had a exit plan in place before we left. Some kind of an idea as to what we were going to do or p to present when we got there. What, what would that look like? 
Well, basically, Knowing what you know now. About- basically, what, exactly what we showed. I mean, we, we did our, our live there with our list, um, you know, and the mandates, uh, federal mandates, provincial mandates. Let's have a, an investigation, like an actual real investigation, not just Justin Trudeau's friends. <laughs> yes. You know, investigating. Um, so we had that whole list, which is all things that, that you know, we wanted to see happen. And um, again, I think if we would have had something like that drafted before, because the problem was once we got there and we were beginning to draft it, it was never the right time to release it. So, like Aaron O'Toole gets kicked out of or resigns or whatever. And we you know we were going to try and release it that day. So of course that's a big news thing. So it just seemed like every time we planned to release this, um, something else came up and we were advised against it. And um, so I think if we could have gotten that out maybe sooner, we would have a either known that they were willing to negotiate with us or not, you know, because they would have had, you know, something more concrete um, or if we were going to have to stay for a while. The one thing that always annoyed me is, is, you know, whenever these little distractions come up, like the memorandum of understanding or Pat King, people will say, well, well, why didn't they denounce it? They did. Why didn't they denounce him? They did. Why? So, so all of these things that you were doing, uh, that you know, other people would say yes, they should do. We're, we're not really being received or communicated the same way the outrage was. You know, the the Terry Fox statue, the arson that wasn't, and so I, I think that there the is arson that was. Well, it's <laughs> what else do you call Terry, it? I mean, yeah, that's but, right. So I think there's a lot of truth to the idea that you were never going to be able to get your message through the mainstream media, which is why I mean, selfishly on my part, I think one of the real victories of the convoy was the rise of independent media. And the awakening of a lot of media consumers and how the mainstream media had a narrative. And, and, you know, the number of people that I've had reach out to me in February of 2022 that have said, I canceled my Globe and Mail subscription. I donate to True North now. I mean, that that was happening more times than I could count. So there was something in, in people seeing, you know, for themselves on the ground or on their friends' live streams and then seeing the CBC Global CTV version of the convoy and being like, these are just two different events. Yeah, which was unbelievable. The, thank goodness. Thank goodness for independent journalists and citizen journalists. Like, you know, if we, this wouldn't have been the age of the cell phone, <laughs> the whole entire country would probably believe yeah. what they were saying. Yeah. You know, but, you know, thanks to, to, to people like you and Rupa, you know, you guys were down. The Rupa was down there the first day. Like, she yeah. was where Every day Rupa yeah, was, yeah. exactly. And talking to people... Um, Keen Bexty was there, um, uh, Bright Light News, like all these independent rebel well, people, people I'd never heard of that were there, that, that I've, you know, now I've, I follow that, that had just popped up or, or were smaller, and then this became this thing that they did a tremendous amount of coverage. Bright Light was one I'd never yeah, heard of, yeah, but then you look great. at the convoy. And, and even look at Dave's story, like the life from the yes, shed. Yes, I mean, yeah. he just shows up, but there's a shed there, and... Yeah. I mean, he, he just... I don't even think he packed, if I recall. I, I think he literally not, just he went just there. Yeah. Yeah, 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 pretty much. Which a lot of people did. Yeah. Like, I talked to people from BC that were just going to go for a couple hours and ended up following yeah. it all the way to Ottawa, right? Crazy. So it was, yeah, it was crazy. It was, it was just amazing. <laughs> so I think I know the answer to this, but I, I think you need to say it in your own words for people. Do you have any regrets? No. After everything you went through, why not? Well, it really hit me over the Christmas holidays, and I had bought my seven-year-old grandson a sled because we have a beautiful toboggan hill in Minnesota. And I picked him up, and we went we went to the toboggan hill, and you know we're climbing up, and we get halfway up one of our runs, and I stop because I'm old, <laughs> I'm a grandma, so I. But you know we stopped halfway up this hill, and I looked, and you know there's families, 
laughing, little kids and teenagers, groups of teenagers and just kids, they're just the smiles and the, and the happiness. And, and I had that conscious thought that I would not trade that one nanosecond for any time in jail. I would do it again in a second just to have that moment, you know? How has it been on your own family? I mean, I, I've met your husband. He was probably one of the most patient men in Canada yes, when all this was going on. You know, you <laughs> left and he was originally at home and didn't come until uh, the lawyers came. Yes. I, I know he's been by your side since. I know you've got children as well. Uh, and I don't know where they are politically on this, but, you know, they've got their own friends that may not be with you politically. So how, how has that been for you to navigate? It's been pretty good. My kids are very supportive. They're not very political. Um, if anything, my oldest is the opposite. She's, she's very quite left-leaning. Um, but she supports me. She may not support what we did, all of it, but she supports me. And so, you know, we just agree to disagree and we don't get too heavy into political discussion. We just know where the line is, where we can get away with, you know, poking jabs at each other. But um, and my, 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 my middle daughter is in Manitoba. She's not very political at all, but she's, uh, she's very proud of what we did. Um, she's very happy. And then my youngest is, you know, she's so young and she supports, she supports what we did, but she went to school in Ottawa last year. And it was, we had the situation, she was moving to Ottawa to go to school last summer. And I kept saying, well, I, I want to come, I'll travel with you. I don't want you driving by yourself. And she kept kind of pushing me off and brushing me off and blowing me off and I was just, just to interject there yeah. you actually had to get special permission yes, from the court to be allowed to bring her to, to go into Ontario yeah. I was banned from Ontario so and I and I started to kind of get her feelings because I she wasn't giving me any straight answers and you know she's of course my daughter I want to just get her moved in school and I, it hit me that she was worried to be seen with me mm. and which I get, like I, I understand that, but what a what a moment of realization, you know, that that's where we're at now. She, I, and I didn't want her to go to Ottawa and get canceled, and you know, so I'm very grateful that I have a different last name as as my daughters because you know I think that spared them some some ugliness. You know, you've seen it on Twitter. It can get people can be ugly. So I think, um, but my family overall is incredibly supportive. My parents are fantastic. Um, I had the funniest moment in Rutgers with my grandson the other day because we go in there and uh, of course people sort of coming in and they're coming over and taking selfies and asking me questions and talking to me and poor little Zayden's like, what is going on, you know? So I had to kind of explain to him that people know who I am now. <laughs> so Let me ask just in closing here, and I should say first off, one of the more amusing little anecdotes you share in the book is that when you went to jail, one of the first things they did was offer you a vaccine, yeah. which I think probably is a sign of the times in, in more ways than one. But you have a trial coming up in September. You and, and Chris Barber are co-accused on this, and, and currently the Crown has shown no sign of relenting on this. Are you expecting to go back to jail? Are you expecting to be convicted? Are you going in with that same hope you had going into the convoy that truth will prevail? I think, I think there's always hope. I, I don't know what to expect anymore. We don't have a justice system in Canada, Andrew. We have a legal system. Um, because if there was any justice, Chris and I wouldn't be in this situation. But, uh, so I don't know what to expect. I'm hopeful. I'm, I, I feel like the truth will prevail, but there's always that chance, you know. Um, I think we have a, a really good judge 
who's got a good head on her shoulders. And uh, so I guess we'll see. There's It's going by fast, but there's still a lot of time between now and September. So who knows? They could even get dropped before then. We just, I don't know. We have a very uh, emotionally vested and passionate Crown Prosecutor, though, <laughs> who would like to see me <laughs> rot in jail, which is funny. Mm -hmm. do, do you still have a bit of disbelief about that? You know, just mm -hmm. looking back at what you did and how that disproportionate crown has taken it? Well, every time I read my book, I mean, and, and I relive it again, you know, it's, it's, uh, I just get so frustrated and I feel angry and, and almost incredulous. Like, who are you? You want 10 years in jail for a mischief charge? An alleged mischief charge? Like, you know, the, the just, Justice Harris, Justice of the Peace Harris was trying to uh, run analogies with firearms charges. Like, yeah, and, and even at the length of our trial, I mean, murder trials sometimes aren't 16 days. Rape trials aren't 16 days for mischief. Well, well, I know you never set out to be a leader, but you certainly were one and are one. And I, I thank you so much for uh, telling the story. The book is Hold the Line by Tamara Leach, and it's a delight that we've got to do this podcast. Yes, thank, thank you, you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.